0: Hello. Thank you for your interest in GeoConvention industry leaders fireside chats. I'm John Hope, the moderator of this chat, which will focus on hydrogen capitalization and outlook. I'm very pleased today to be joined for the hydrogen hydrogen session by the president of Proton Technologies, Grant Strum. Grant, to kick us off, could you tell us tell the delegates a little bit about yourself? Happy to, John.
1: Thanks. Uh, my background: I'm a professional geologist and at one point, I did an engineering master's because John was my boss, and uh, when I was at ConocoPhillips about almost 15 years yeah. ago, he, he basically advocated that the company pay for my uh, evenings and weekends master's degree, which he successfully did. After I completed that and had a lot of exposure to various exploration concepts uh, through the new ventures group that John managed, um, I moved into different roles at various producers around town. Um, mostly large companies, and like many of us, mostly focused towards eventually heavy oil and oil sands. One thing that struck me both from the shale gas side and the oil sand side was the immensity of the resources. Like, it's hard to fathom how much resource is actually out there. A lot of it's sub-economic. Yeah. But um, anyways, um, that has guided my career, including
0: towards hydrogen. Okay. Alright, so let's get into some questions, uh, you know, for a lot of people in, that are, are viewing this today, what is the business case for hydrogen, Grant? Well, the business case for hydrogen is that it's already
1: economic in comparison to diesel and gasoline as a transportation fuel, but now there are new methods emerging as the cost structures decline further and new pathways to hydrogen to be economic even for base load electricity, head-to-head against solar, head-to-head against natural gas through turbines. So I think that this is going to be
0: a rapid transition because of the price. Okay. Okay. And I've I've seen in uh, in in many and many of the articles I've read all the different colors of hydrogen. Yes. It's quite confusing. I don't think everybody has the same standards. Why don't you give the delegates a sense for the types of hydrogen? Sure. I'll start with the most common today. It's called gray
1: hydrogen where they take natural gas, burn it, and mix it with very hot steam, and reactions occur which give hydrogen as a a byproduct. 95% of the world's hydrogen is this gray hydrogen. Blue hydrogen is the same, but you try and capture as much of the emissions as you can and deeply inject them somewhere, sequester them geologically. Um, Green hydrogen is a different pathway where they take uh, wind and solar or other renewable electricity and do electrolysis, which is basically electrocuting water until the, the energy. The green experiment. Yes, right. <laughs> exactly. And maybe in Finland, it's grade four. I don't <laughs> know. But anyways, we have these different um, two main pathways. But now there are others starting to emerge. Um, the most interesting, from my perspective, is is called clear hydrogen. And actually, that can take that can be defined as anything with a carbon intensity lower than zero. Um, which means that you take extra CO two and somehow remove it from the atmosphere or elsewhere in order to produce
0: that hydrogen. Okay, and and why does why does that color matter to the investment community versus the consumer? Who cares more about the color of that? Well, I think it's for the from the consumer's
1: perspective, it's less expensive. Right. From the investment community's perspective, it's less expensive, but it also has no need for fresh water. It has uh, no requirement for an ongoing supply of fuel that the price might be gyrating like natural gas. It can avoid uh, carbon taxes because, or it can actually benefit from carbon taxes
0: by sequestering CO2 along and the way. And where does proton fall? It's clear, clear clear. Okay. hydrogen. Okay. 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 Um, so what are the capital requirements that you have for producing hydrogen, um, in, in terms of what will what will change have to change to make the capital investment there uh, more attractive in the future. What what has to change for this to happen? Basically,
1: to make hydrogen, you need a lot of energy to break those water molecule bonds. If it's done as high temperature reactions, um, those are most easily released through low cost oxygen. So. If the fuel is essentially free, unswept oil within a, right. a reservoir, then you're, most of the cost is the oxygen. So separating oxygen from the air and getting it into the reservoir, that's about 80% of the cost. Okay. So breakthroughs and improvements mm-hmm. there will absolutely continue to compress the cost down from about 25 cents per kilogram
0: at scale uh, and lower. Okay. okay. And uh, <clears throat> in terms of the regulatory challenges, you face in the industry, are they similar to oil and gas or are they different for you? I think they're similar.
1: One of the challenges, uh, particular to the pipeline world, is you have um, right now the specs all all across North America on main lines are no hydrogen, you're not allowed, which is different than in Europe. They're already blending in intentionally and widespread. But in North America, there are a few different processes where it gets in the way, maybe as a a chemicals input, somebody needs very pure methane, for example. And until they can organize a plan to make that work, it's difficult to get into the pipe stream with hydrogen. Power lines are a totally different story. Uh, You can burn, blend hydrogen as a fuel with natural gas, and that's already happening in many parts of the world. Most of the new big turbine manufacturers are making units that are hydrogen compatible so they oh. can burn methane and then with relatively modest changes can instead burn pure hydrogen. Okay, or a mixture of? Or Usually it's one or the other. You can okay. blend up to maybe 30% or so of okay. hydrogen and same, similarly, if you have a hydrogen one, you can blend down if you have some methane to put into it but
0: that sort of 50-50 zone is a little harder to attain. Okay, okay. Um, so, so um, in, where are you with your current projects in Saskatchewan? Let's start in Saskatchewan. Okay, Saskatchewan.
1: Well, it's, it's funny. We have been taking advantage of a very old um, recognized thing within oil and gas where enhanced oil recovery projects, certain ones of them, already make hydrogen. So right. when air is injected or oxygen is injected. So the old tide kind of process. Yeah, anything with uh, some sort of downhole oxidation All automatically will release hydrogen and there's been more than 500 projects like that. The project we bought is air injection and we're still doing that uh, although we intend to start trucking in liquid oxygen this fall and I think that'll be um, well based on prior data sets from other companies and whatnot
0: we're we're quite confident that we'll have an improvement in our uh, hydrogen production capacity. Maybe just tell—I I know the story—but maybe just tell people how you came up with this. Working at U of C with Dr. Gates, oh, sure. Maybe tell a little bit of that story <laughs> because I think it's quite interesting.
1: Yeah, so one of my one of my friends from the master's degree that I took, thanks to John, uh, was—he was a professor. I took a few courses from Dr. Ian Gates, and about ten years after the master's degree, we're having breakfast one day, and he showed me this data set. Uh, of a a Canadian project at Marguerite Lake, where they often got up above 20% or even exceeded 40% hydrogen in the produced gas stream. And I had never heard of this before, so it had my full attention and I thought, if there was only a way to put a downhole filter that only let the hydrogen through, uh, you know, this would be a huge clean energy trajectory. And Ian leaned back and said, I think I know of a material that does that. And I guess, long
0: story short, that was the birth of proton, right? Okay. So between you and Dr. Gates, you patented that technology. How many years ago would
1: it have been the first patent was about six years ago, okay. and we've filed two since, and we have one more coming up, and we'll probably have some more widget patents as we go. Just okay. more defensive than anything, okay. but um, yeah, it's it's been uh, interesting to see. This is a, a fairly straightforward process patent, and I, I think of it a bit like wheels on suitcases. Why did everybody carry around a suitcase with no wheels for decades and decades, and then suddenly one day, why don't we put wheels on this? It's like everyone knew
0: about <laughs> wheels. <laughs> Same thing here. <laughs> and so, so just for the audience, your process would work in any oil field, any any oil field that even is currently abandoned. You know, it, it, it's depleted, it's sitting there um, unable to be produced because you've produced the, mass, the vast majority of the hydrocarbon that can, you can get out. But just tell everybody a little bit about what you need in that field for your process to work. Sure. So it's it's almost
1: any oil field. You have to have caprock integrity that's sufficient. So if it's an area with active faulting to surface that burps a bunch of fluids now and then, probably inappropriate. Okay. If you're somewhere that's extremely shallow or has had recent glaciation, you need to have a very close look at the geomechanics of the cap rock. Right. And following Directive 86 from Alberta, I think is a good guideline okay. for uh, evaluating that. What do you need? It's preferable to have higher porosity rather than lower porosity. And the more energy density you have per cubic meter means the less rock you're heating up. Right. So. Um, the efficiency goes up if you have, for example, a heavy oil field that did not have good sweep efficiency, versus something that had exceptionally good
0: uh, drainage in its primary mode. Okay. Okay. And and in terms of in terms of the process itself, uh, you focused on currently focused on heavy oil, but are you looking elsewhere in the world for different different Uh, Fields that you could produce. Absolutely. So we we think that this
1: works in essentially all geological settings economically So we're looking to do it in a carbonate reservoir. We would like to try some post water flood light oil fields. There's a variety of uh, Some sometimes the rock itself has a reasonably high TOC total organic carbon content and that becomes fuel as well we don't want to do it in coal and I won't yeah. get into why, but uh,
0: I want to distance Proton's brand from coal gasification. Okay, okay. And what about what about Proton looking uh, not only in Canada but internationally? Is there opportunity? Do you think internationally for you to be using the same uh, patented technology? Absolutely. In fact, we've sold licenses in about twenty countries.
1: Uh, Proton Canada also took on the North Sea rights, so we'll be we are having a lot of. Uh, Strategizing going on into how to uh, advance this within the North Sea. Uh, within Southeast Asia and Australia, one of our licensees is a huge wind and solar company. They okay. have 12 gigawatts of wind and solar, and a big challenge with intermittency and grid stabilization. So being able to dial a hydrogen turbine up or down is a very low cost way for them to add power. Okay. Um, we also have sold licenses to oil companies and. Um, there is various stages of progress in various regions. Locally, the one that talks about their uh, license publicly is Whitecap Resources, okay. so a company that I'm a big positive proponent of.
0: Okay, I like them a lot. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I guess I guess the next question would be to think about is what would you see hydrogen production looking like from from clear hydrogen that you're talking about in the next five to ten years, how would you see that develop? I think
1: it, like many big shifts, it starts with a trickle and then it's a flood. Um, There's going to be a few examples here and there, and once people see the economics of this at large scale in a few different settings, um, it'll just be obvious this is a better model, kind of like uh, the transition from horses to the Model T. It happened so quickly that, you know, Model T production started in 1908. And by the end of the 20s, there was 200,000 fueling stations in the United States. So it isn't like um, people say, well, there isn't enough infrastructure. There isn't this, there isn't that. Well, that's true. But if you can save huge piles of money by
0: changing fuel, uh, that infrastructure will all show up. Okay. All right. Um, How long do you think it will take? Before hydrogen becomes mainstream, in your in your sense, of mainstream being that you would like your example, there would be a hydrogen fueling station, uh, you know, on the corner uh, beside the gas station, or maybe part of the gas station. Is that decades away? I don't believe it is, and it, it mostly depends on
1: where. I think Germany has about 150 fueling stations. Many parts of Europe, Japan, Korea, they're really pushing forward. California. So it's, it's more and more feasible through time. And of course, with the massive budgets pushing into the build out of this uh, as a fuel technology to decarbonize, okay. it's highly likely to be rapidly adopted in many areas. There are some things that are very hard to decarbonize and heavy transport is right. one. Right. So anything that's burning huge amounts of diesel, like locomotives and things like that, it's hard to use battery locomotive to right. haul uh, through the mountains or whatever, so I, I think
0: that hydrogen would, will find its way quickly into many of these niches. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about um, about the company and 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 the employees. So uh, I'm I'm sure that many of your employees didn't graduate from university and think they'd be working in the hydrogen business. So where did where did most of your employees come from in terms of uh, uh, their skill sets are almost all of them related to oil and gas, or almost all, yes. So, okay. you have the standard things that most businesses
1: have <coughs> HR and right. corporate services let's just accounting, let's call that bucket one that's human. Sure. Yeah, but almost everybody else has oil and gas related credentials and experience. That's not entirely true. We do have some fuel cell focused people and some people who. We're more directly in the hydrogen business that came over to us. Oh, interesting. Um, or from, like, from Tesla, from Ballard, from okay. places like that. Uh, in general, our older staff are happy to accept Proton Canada shares as compensation. Right. And our young guys and gals are excited to be there. Um, so we don't have get-rich-quick salaries, <laughs> but uh, people are loading up on shares with an expectation that those are gonna have a huge value relative to instead
0: of Canadian dollars. Right, right. Okay. And, and so, <laughs> so on your major projects, um, the vast majority of people are oil and, oil and gas, um, how, oil and gas legacy people. And how, how do you tie in the hydrogen people to those projects? So like what, what specifically would they be doing on those projects? Those people are specifically
1: focused on hydrogen separation pathways. So when you have a mixed gas stream coming at you and hydrogen's a part of it, uh, which is a heritage oil and gas uh, thing to deal right, with. Right. But um, that, that's a, there's some subtleties and specialties that um, are used there. Almost everything else, the regulatory people, the, um, you name it, everybody in the field has, you know, normal trades and tickets from oil and gas. Um, we, we're using wells, well heads, and an oil field to make our hydrogen. So like the, the process, the facilities, much of this is extremely transferable and common. Okay. okay. Welders,
0: you name it. Okay. What about the capital markets? How how do they look at Proton? Do they look at it as a startup and it needs to it needs a little bit more time? And like I, I know for the most part you're still you're still private. Yes. Right. Yeah. So how how do you, what sense do you have? Do they treat you as you know there there's a negativity in the capital markets towards oil and gas. Do you sense the same negativity towards what you're doing as Clear Hydrogen, or do you sense them just um, waiting to see um, the projects come to fruition? Which which way would you see? So it's, it's
1: a whole spectrum. Okay. I, it's kind of like when Tesla was early and had the Roadster out, right. and people. I think most people in the automotive mm-hmm. industry said, "Oh, forget this." They kind own, of laughed at like, Yeah, yeah, you're right. And as uh, that's that was six years ago a much more common reaction when talking to oil and gas investors like oh, where's the proof blah 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 right now um, there's this gnawing feeling that their main bread and butter will have uh, challenges going forward like carbon taxes and other things like that so um, yeah we have a lot more uh, positivity in and, and, and yeah happy investors and, and a bright future in my opinion the conversations are. Far less about justify your valuation based on trailing cash flow, right? Which is more common in oil and gas, right. and more now about well, what is the potential? What is the risk on executing on this program that right. they've uh, built for themselves? Right. So, um, yeah,
0: the the future is big, and a lot of people see that. Okay. Okay. Um, let's let's turn back to the the air versus oxygen. Uh, yeah. Question only because I think I think we covered it briefly, but not in detail. For maybe just a better understanding f- for the audience of why is there such a difference with injecting air versus oxygen in terms of the product becoming both ways you get hydrogen, but what makes it more more hydrogen rich by just injecting the oxygen? It's a great
1: question. So, the air we're breathing, of course, is 80% nitrogen and about 20% oxygen. And when we inject air, all of that nitrogen, first off, it's it's a waste of energy to inject it. But once it's down there, it does not react with anything. It becomes sort of a moderation on the the temperatures that are achievable. Uh, This is undesired for two reasons. One is that it's almost impossible to have a zero emissions process because nitrogen is likely to pressure up the system. right? And so if it needs a vent, well then suddenly it's a lot more uh, complicated right. to deal with all the nitrogens. Uh, so uh, getting to higher temperatures, there's kind of a Goldilocks zone where um, a certain reaction called water gas shift is triggered. And if you get into this Goldilocks zone, it, it is extremely productive for making hydrogen. And you can achieve that much more uh, over a much broader volume, rock volume, okay. much more easily if nitrogen is not cooling things off, transferring heat around, diluting the whole, the whole system. So um, there's a process efficiency, and then of course, if you remove uh, all that nitrogen in your produced gas, not, not only do you get the better efficiency boost, but uh, the concentration of everything else goes up if you don't have nitrogen in the system. Okay, so
0: those are, the, yeah, CO2 can turn into carbonate, nitrogen does not. Right, so, right. so nitrogen basically just sits in the reservoir as a gaseous state, not, it doesn't go anywhere, and, and, it's, and it's really just causing the reservoir to pressure up. Highly Which, unhelpful from every perspective. Okay, so pure oxygen
1: is for sure the way to go. Okay. If you do cryogenic oxygenate, oxygen separation, the other advantage is you don't have to compress it, you just warm it up. And right. that's how you get
0: to okay. above reservoir pressure. Okay. Do you have any other, other comments you'd like to share in terms of um, have Proton and its work? Yeah, I do. So
1: one of the things that is often overlooked in environmental conversations and investor conversations is air pollution. Right. It kills millions mm-hmm. of people every year. We're burning oil in all of our cities around the planet, and it's making us ill and killing us. And uh, to me, this is something that is easily solved by hydrogen or a combination of zero emissions types of energy sources. Um, that will, I think, eclipse the narrative longer term, uh, as, as opposed to concern about climate change. I think, to me, air pollution is a huge crisis. It needs
0: more airtime. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Grant, let's talk about hydrogen and capitalization in the markets. How are the markets? How do the markets look at hydrogen in terms of clear hydrogen that you're trying to produce? Well, clear hydrogen is still, um,
1: we are not publicly traded at this point. So it's, it's um, tough to say with certainty how, how the markets will interpret us. But I, I will say just thematically, I've noticed a difference, for example, between talking to banks in Canada and investment bankers here versus, for example, Oslo. So we're having a very close look at the Euronext growth market in Oslo and a few things jump out at me right away as intriguing differences. The first is they've had about 15 very, very successful hydrogen stocks over the last two years. Um, Like very, very significant success. So you have this um, community of hydrogen aware people who understand the market. They're not going to ask questions about the Hindenburg. There's like, you know, They're well beyond that. In Norway, there's already fueling stations and ferries running on hydrogen. It's just part of the future and part of the present. Here, it's still abstract. There is zero fueling stations in Alberta, for example. Um, So people don't really see that as economic yet. Um, The other thing about that market, I think that's perhaps interesting is, is... in general, uh, there's a high degree of literacy around energy. So in Norway, most people have an oil and gas background, or they have some sort of
0: energy and analysis right uh, quantification. Yeah, there are right. generations in Norway who have seen that company, that country of four million people, basically uh, grow dramatically in an oil and gas. So they, it's like in Alberta, almost exactly four million people here, four million people there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah similarly, but
1: there are not. A lot of resounding hydrogen stories out of Alberta. Nobody's knocked the lid off it, and certainly not 15 companies. So yes, Ballard had some success, but it's still, um, a lot of people still remember Ballard for the initial fall, not for the triumph of of recently. So um, there just seems to be a more guarded sense of optimism about hydrogen and its role in the transition here,
0: whereas it's just full on uh, within the mindset. They're doing it. Okay. Well, listen, I'd like to thank you very much for your time. I know how busy you are. I know I know how uh, how your admin assistant keeps you on time, and I'd like to thank her for getting you here on time. Thanks, Judy, and, and, and once again, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much, John. Look, I appreciate it.